Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about gastroesophageal cancer with Dr. Jill Lacey. Dr. Lacey is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Jill, you know, we don't often talk about gastroesophageal cancers much. Tell us a little bit more about them. How common are they? Uh, Who do they affect? Um, What do they encompass? It is a somewhat heterogeneous group of cancers. We'll elaborate on that as we go along. Um, And it is not certainly uh, a common group of cancers, uh, certainly compared to, say, breast cancer or lung cancer. So if you combine esophagus and gastric cancer in the United States, there's about 46,000 cases a year about 27,000 deaths. So it is uh, quite a lethal cancer. And by contrast, lung cancer, over 200,000 cases. Breast cancer, I believe, over 270,000 cases. But interestingly, um, the death rate, as I indicated, still is quite high. You compare the say, with breast cancer, where I believe we're down to uh, in the range of 40,000 deaths per year. So even though it's not a common cancer, Um, It is still a significant problem in terms of its lethality, uh, even in the United States. Now, what's interesting about these cancers is that there's quite a bit of geographic variation in incidence. And gastric cancer actually is quite common worldwide and a significant public health problem. It's actually the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths globally, over 1 million cases and over 800,000 deaths. So it does remain, I think, a huge issue globally and still problematic in the United States. And and on top of that, gastroesophageal cancers not only are gastric cancers or cancers of the stomach, but also of the esophagus. But the esophagus is a long tube that goes all the way from essentially your your mouth um, all the way down to your stomach. So talk a little bit about whether those cancers, the cancers of the esophagus and the cancers of the stomach are similar or different and whether there are different types of cancers um, even within that. Sure. So we often divide these cancers into two anatomic groups, esophagus cancer, as you alluded to, and gastric, or what we call stomach cancer. Uh, And esophagus cancer, we now know, really is comprised of two very distinct types, really essentially different diseases, if you will. One type is called squamous cell cancer, and under the microscope and in terms of its molecular biology and risk factors, it's actually quite similar to cancers of the throat and the head and neck region. The risk factor there is tobacco and alcohol and poverty. And interestingly, the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus has really dropped dramatically, particularly uh, in the Western world. So that's the good news. 
The other type of esophagus cancer is called adenocarcinoma. And that actually arises at the bottom of the esophagus, uh, where it connects in with the stomach, often referred to as gastroesophageal junction cancer. And that looks much more like a typical gastric cancer under the microscope and, and actually is much more similar to gastric cancer than it is to squamous cell cancers of the esophagus. And they are they they have different risk factors. So I for I alluded to the risk factors for squamous cell of the esophagus. It's predominantly tobacco and alcohol, as we see with head and neck cancer. For the adenocarcinomas of the esophagus that arise at the bottom of the esophagus, um, what's interesting about that is that there actually has been quite a dramatic increase in the incidence of this particular entity, gastroesophageal junction adenocarcinoma, particularly in Caucasian males, a, a, a great a male predominance. We don't fully understand uh, that increase um, some of the risk factors that are linked to adenocarcinoma of the esophagus are a high BMI or obesity, uh, possibly diet, um, gastroesophageal reflux disease is certainly uh, a risk factor in some cases. Um, but smoking and alcohol do not seem to play a predominant role in the risk factor of the gastroesophageal adenocarcinomas. Then you get into the stomach, and we're talking about classic gastric cancer. And there, what's very interesting is that there's been a progressive decline um, across the globe and in the United States in the incidence of gastric cancer. As it was the number one cause of cancer-related deaths globally until about the 1980s when it was surpassed by lung cancer. There are a lot of uh, interesting theories about why that is, um, and we do know that there are some risk factors for stomach or gastric cancer, uh, and these include some environmental and lifestyle risk factors. One of the most prominent is a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, which is quite prevalent, and some strains of that bacteria are cancer-causing and do increase the risk of gastric cancer. There have been a lot of studies over the decades about diet, so it does seem that salt-preserved and smoked foods increase the risk, as well as diets that are low in fresh fruits and vegetables. Modest risk, risk factors would be smoking uh, and obesity and, and probably lower socioeconomic status. So there are a lot of differences, not only anatomically and in terms of the pathology under the microscope, but also risk factors. Yeah, it's interesting, Jill, that you mentioned that the esophageal cancer rate and the gastric cancer rate both seems to have dropped. But gastroesophageal cancers, those cancers that occur at that junction, uh, the the adeno cancers, um, have increased. Um, and, and you mentioned that we we don't know why exactly those have increased. But do we have any insight into? What played a role in decreasing the incidence of, of esophageal cancers and of gastric cancers? So for squamous cell carcinomas of the esophagus, uh, it, it is related to a decrease uh, in smoking uh, and uh, 
improvements in socioeconomic status and nutrition, those seem to be quite linked to squamous of the esophagus. And for gastric cancer, we do think that it does relate to a decreasing incidence of H. pylori colonization or infection related likely to refrigeration um, over the last century or so. Hmm. So as uh, areas of the world that are underdeveloped develop, we see a drop in the incidence of gastric cancer. So that's the prevailing theory. Great. But, you know, it's interesting that despite these advances, and and certainly there's a long way to go, this is still, as you mentioned, a a fairly lethal cancer when we think about gastroesophageal cancers as a whole. Is that because they tend to present at late stages in general? I think it's a it's a combination of factors. Uh, yes, they are they are lethal cancers, and that's why even though they're not so common in the United States, they're still very problematic. So the five year cure rate for esophageal cancer is only about twenty percent. It's a little bit higher for gastric cancer, about thirty percent, and. I think the reasons for this are multifactorial, if you will, uh, in some cases due to a delay in diagnosis, but I don't think that's the major reason. I think it has much to do with the inherent biology of these tumors, a propensity to disseminate or spread uh, early on, and then the need for better and more effective therapies to deal with disseminated disease. I would add that in contrast to the common cancers, such as breast, colorectal, lung, uh, cervical, there is no widespread screening for these cancers, at least in the Western world in the United States, a little bit different in Asia. Uh, And therefore, early detection is less likely to happen with these cancers as opposed to, say, breast cancer. So that certainly would be a contributing factor. Talk a little bit about um, the differences in screening in Asia. How, how uh, How do... people in Asia get screened for esophageal cancers and and why? And why hasn't that been adopted uh, in the U.S.? Usually we find screening to be more prevalent in the Western world than we do in less developed countries. Great questions. Uh, In terms of screening in Asia, for gastric cancer, uh, they do pretty sophisticated radiographic studies to look at the surface of the stomach to see if there are irregularities. And then for esophagus cancer, uh, a screening modality is to have patients swallow a balloon and sort of pull it up through the esophagus and you pull off uh, abnormal cells in the lining of the esophagus. And those are two screening modalities that can be uh, applied widely. In the United States, because it is an uncommon cancer, uh, I think there's just not been a lot of focus on on widespread uh, screening for these cancers. Hmm. So you mentioned that um, these cancers tend, because of their biology, to be more advanced um, at the time of presentation and or uh, rapidly get to a more advanced or metastatic stage. How often, what proportion of these patients present with advanced or metastatic disease out of all of the, the, the gastroesophageal cancers that you see? 
So still the majority of the patients are presenting with non-disseminated or non-metastatic disease. Uh, So that's the good news. But uh, despite that, uh, again, oftentimes, particularly with the more advanced but still non-metastatic uh, cases, there is what we call a cult dissemination, um, and that is where we look to additional therapies such as chemotherapy to try to increase the cure rate. You know, it's something that we've been doing for several decades in the breast cancer world and certainly uh, has a role in these cancers as well, even in those patients who appear to have localized and potentially curable disease. And so, you know, I want to kind of get into how exactly we we treat patients. And so with those patients with localized um, disease, can we treat these patients for curative intent? And how, how do we do that? So absolutely. So patients who present with non-metastatic Uh, disease, so no evidence of dissemination to other sites in the body, and and that we determine simply by getting imaging, usually a CAT scan or in some cases a PET scan. So for those patients, uh, there is a path to cure for many of those patients. Um, And that often involves surgery as the centerpiece of the cure. And then in many cases where the disease is more locally advanced, we will need adjunctive therapies in addition to surgery to further increase the cure rate. And that's true both for esophagus cancer uh, and for gastric cancer. Now, when when the disease has spread or is more advanced, um, I would imagine that therapies can be a little bit more challenging or problematic. Um, so I, but I do understand that there are some new advances that may help uh, patients who have more advanced or metastatic disease. So I want to get into all of that, but first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about gastroesophageal cancer with my guest, Dr. Jill Lacey. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering across the oncology community to improve outcomes across various stages of cancer. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jill Lacey. We're talking about gastroesophageal cancer. And right before the break, Jill was telling us about how this is a rare cancer, but one that really is 
fatal uh, for for some patients and especially difficult or perhaps more challenging to treat in the advanced and metastatic setting. So, Jill, tell us a little bit more about uh, historically uh, the options that we've had for advanced and metastatic gastroesophageal cancers and some of the new developments that maybe can give patients more hope. Sure. So for most of my career, uh, when patients develop metastatic uh, or disseminated esophageal or gastric cancers, uh, we were able to offer some treatments, uh, but the prognosis was poor and the survival was relatively short. And those treatments up until relatively recently were basically the use of chemotherapy or cytotoxic drugs, traditional chemotherapy drugs. And those uh, drugs uh, often provided some palliation and modestly prolonged survival, but it was unusual to see long-term survivors, and uh, we were not curing patients with those treatments. And so, so what changed more recently? So there have been some very exciting advances in the treatment of metastatic or disseminated both esophageal uh, and gastric cancers. Uh, And the first advance came about a decade ago, and this was uh, in the area of gastric and gastroesophageal adenocarcinomas. And what we had learned was that uh, these are heterogeneous from a molecular perspective, and about 20 to 30 percent of these uh, tumors uh, carried uh, high levels of a protein called HER2. And we knew that this protein also was present in breast cancer, a significant percentage of patients. And a uh, drug had been developed, what's called an antibody, that targeted HER2 in breast cancer, and it was extraordinarily effective. That drug is trastuzumab or Herceptin. And so it was, it was theorized that perhaps trastuzumab or Herceptin would have activity in the HER2-positive gastric and esophageal adenocarcinomas. So there was a large global effort to answer that question. Patients with advanced disease, metastatic or stage four, were assigned to get the standard uh, of care at that time, chemotherapy with two drugs, or chemotherapy plus trastuzumab or Herceptin. And the results of that uh, study were really quite stunning um, in that survival was significantly improved for those patients who received Herceptin or Trastuzumab. So I would say that was the first big advance and changed the paradigm about how we think about these cancers in terms of looking at the molecular profile and thinking about using targeted therapies. Uh, So that was very exciting. And then what happened? It sounds like well, there's, a, um, there's another shoe that's about to drop. There, there is. So uh, in the breast cancer world, what followed on after the discovery of Herceptin was the development of other drugs that targeted this protein, HER2. And uh, there were additional drugs that were developed and approved and that were effective. 
But unfortunately, when those drugs were tested in gastroesophageal cancers that were positive for HER2, uh, they were not effective. And that was disappointing. And so we were learning that HER2 positive gastroesophageal cancer is not the same thing as HER2 positive breast cancer. That's interesting. So wait a second. So so what you're saying is that um, trastuzumab uh, worked in HER2 positive gastric cancer, but pertuzumab, I'm assuming that you meant pertuzumab, um, which also targets HER2, did not work. It, it did not in the studies that were conducted, as well as the antibody drug conjugate TDM1 and lapatinib, those studies were Interesting. negative. Interesting. Why yeah. was that? I mean, did they did they think that there was something particular about HER2 or was it uh, or or about uh, uh, trastuzumab versus the the other uh, drugs in terms of what particular subunit of HER2 that they were targeting or what was the, what was the hypothesis behind why one drug would work but the others didn't that is a great question and i don't know that we have all the answers uh, we do know that gastroesophageal cancers are much more heterogeneous in terms of their levels of expression are more likely to lose expression over time so that's one issue. Some of it may have been related to how the studies were designed and conducted. But I don't think we fully understand why we don't see the exact same activity of some of these agents in gastric and esophageal adenocarcinomas that we're seeing in breast cancer. Interesting. Okay, sorry to interrupt. But it still sounds like there was another shoe that was going to drop. Well, I think we're very excited in that it does appear that there's going to be newer generations of HER2 uh, targeting um, agents that are going to be effective in gastric cancer. So uh, one of them is a very interesting drug that is also used in breast cancer now very recently, where uh, you take trastuzumab and you link it up biochemically to a chemotherapeutic drug. So this is something called trastuzumab deruxtecan, a bit of a mouthful to say. And that uh, has been approved in breast cancer that's HER2 positive and has been tested now in HER2 positive gastroesophageal adenocarcinomas in patients who've already been on trastuzumab and have failed treatment. And the results really were stunning, um, with major shrinkage in more than half of the patients, which is not something that we typically see in this disease, really with any line of therapy, and very impressive survival. So this is very exciting. There was a New England Journal of Medicine paper regarding this data earlier this year, and I do believe this, this new drug will be approved not only in breast cancer, but also in HER2-positive gastroesophageal cancer. So we're very excited about that. And again, this is for our patients who, are, who have HER2-positive tumors, so it's not for all comers. Uh, so that's one development. And then I think we will also see some newer generation uh, antibodies that are similar to trastuzumab, but more potent in recruiting the immune system uh, into, into action to kill the cancer. Uh, and uh, so one of those is 
is called marcituximab, so quite similar to trastuzumab, but it enhances the immune response. And we've already seen really positive and exciting preliminary data when margituximab is combined with immunotherapy. And there's a very exciting ongoing clinical trial uh, looking at this combination of margituximab and immunotherapy with chemotherapy in newly diagnosed patients. So we're very excited about the second and third generation uh, iterations of trastuzumab. And then there are other uh, uh, novel antibodies targeting HER2 that are being developed. So I do think that the field is really going to open up uh, in terms of treatment of HER2-positive stage four gastroesophageal adenocarcinoma. And I'm very hopeful that the prognosis for these patients will improve significantly with these therapies. But there's still a large fraction of patients who are HER2 negative. So what about them? Does standard immunotherapy, for example, with checkpoint inhibitors help them? Yes. So again, this is where there's been some excitement really just in the past few months. So we hear a lot about immune checkpoint inhibitors, drugs like pembrolizumab or Keytruda, nivolumab or Opdivo, in the common cancer, lung cancer, melanoma, and many other cancers, where these immunotherapeutic agents have really been game changers. These agents, in the way the studies have been done to date, have not appeared to have a significant impact in gastroesophageal cancer. Um, but there is some activity, and we're learning more about who should get these agents, who will benefit most, when and how to use them. And I think that's where the field is moving forward uh, in a very positive way. So there are already uh, FDA approvals for pembrolizumab and nivolumab, classical immune checkpoint inhibitors in gastroesophageal cancer. So we can use pembrolizumab in patients who failed standard several lines of standard therapy if their tumor expresses the target PDL1. That's for gastric and gastroesophageal adenocarcinomas. And pembrolizumab is also approved in esophageal squamous cell carcinoma after standard initial chemotherapy, where it's very active and the results are very impressive there. And it's also active in a very small subset of patients uh, whose tumors are characterized by what we call microsatellite instability or loss of a DNA repair mechanism. These tumors are characterized by lots of mutations in abnormal proteins and respond very well to immune checkpoint inhibitors, but that's a small percentage in the range of 3 to 5% all comers. So what's most exciting is data that we heard really just a few months ago um, regarding the, the incorporation of immune checkpoint inhibitors into the initial treatment of stage four gastric and esophageal cancers. Um, and so there were a couple of studies that were presented uh, at the major meeting in Europe. Um, both had similar designs. Uh, one was focused on gastroesophageal adenocarcinoma. And in this study, patients were uh, given either the standard two-drug chemotherapy, standard of care, 
are those same two chemotherapy drugs with nivolumab or Opdivo. And again, really exciting results with the significant improvement uh, in survival, a higher response rate, and excellent tolerability. So lots of excitement about that. And then a second study with a very similar design of chemo or chemo with, in this case, pembrolizumab. And here the focus was on esophageal cancer, both squamous and adenocarcinoma. And again, a similar exciting result showing a significant improvement in survival, actually a doubling of survival um, at two years. So this is, this is really great news um, uh, for patients with these diseases. And I do think that these studies will ultimately lead to new indications and FDA approvals. We're not there yet, but I think we're getting close. What about in terms of other targeted therapies? Um, you know, we uh, have talked on this show with other people from other disease uh, groups um, and other cancer types about looking at cancers and seeing what genes are turned on and turned off to try to target these. Um, how much of that goes on in gastroesophageal cancers? Are, are we getting there in terms of genomic analysis of these cancers and being able to target them, aside from HER2? Yes, absolutely. So we routinely uh, recommend that all patients with advanced gastroesophageal adenocarcinomas and, and squamous cell carcinomas undergo what is referred to as tumor profiling or molecular profiling to look at the uh, genetic makeup of the tumor to see what makes it tick. Now, we haven't identified a high frequency of recurring targets to date other than HER2, but there are targets that are expressed with reasonable frequency that are what we call actionable or druggable, where we can develop a drug or have a drug that potentially could target that abnormality. So we've talked at length today already about HER2, and that's that's a critically important target in those 25 to 30% of patients. And again, an, another exciting development, I we, are, I think, are on the cusp of another targeted therapy. This, again, is a, an antibody so similar to trastuzumab that is targeting another protein called uh, fibroblast growth factor receptor, a protein that, like HER2, is expressed on the surface. And again, in about probably 20 to 30% of patients is expressed at very high levels or overexpressed. Um, and this has been uh, uh, a target for the development of an antibody. And we heard really just this week from a press release, so we haven't seen the data, so we have to stay tuned, that a study looking at patients who have this uh, target, FGFR2, um, looking at these patients and combining the antibody that targets FGFR2 with chemotherapy and comparing that to standard of care chemotherapy alone. 
And at least based on the press release, this looks like it will be a positive study. So again, quite a bit of excitement and buzz uh, in the field because this will uh, give us another target and will capture more patients who have actionable uh, abnormalities or mutations with gastroesophageal cancers. So, so that's one it. example. There are several others and drugs in the pipeline looking at other targets. Dr. Jill Lacey is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.